The Right Hook Podcast. Make business sense on the road with the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater SUV with low BIK, 200 euro VRT and a five-year warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie Hi there. George Hook here with The Right Hook on News Talk Tuesday's version. And if there are things you missed on the show, or indeed if you missed the show in its entirety, here are some of the highlights. Well, of course, as you know, yesterday was the start of National Bike Week. And in a rush of blood to the head, I decided... Uh, I would use a Paris-assisted bicycle to get to work. It's a bit wet this morning, so I have to confess I didn't put my wet gear on. But anyway, uh, Dublin City Council, at enormous expense and hoopla, uh, put in a pedestrian way in Clarendon Street. I am mown down by a cyclist today. Uh, literally today, uh, I have a reasonable right to expect that I can walk in the pedestrian way uh, and not expect... I was coming back to coming to work, so I'm walking up the pedestrian way. And this guy plows into me and then takes offence because we're using some old Anglo-Saxon phrases. Uh, I explained to him that this was a pedestrian way. Uh, would he move? No, he wouldn't. Uh, eventually, however, I think six foot three and uh, 16 and a half stone of George Hook persuaded him uh, to move out of the pedestrian way. Of course, he promptly went back in 10 yards further on, but I had the satisfaction of getting him out. The problem is that the idiots at Dublin City Council who put in this pedestrian way didn't put in a sign. Nowhere can you find that it says this is for pedestrian way. And Councillor Cuff, uh, the chairman of the Transport Committee, sitting in his ivory tower as he works increasingly to allow motor cars to travel at walking pace and allow his co-religionist the cyclists to do what the hell they like. It isn't about motor cars versus bicycles. This is about old age pensioners, women, children cannot walk in safety uh, on a pedestrian way. Now if you think that is bad enough, at nine o'clock this morning in Rat Mines, on the main street in Rat Mines, pedestrians are going about their daily business walking up and down the footpath, and there's a fella cycling up the footpath, weaving in and out of pedestrians. Less than three feet to his right is a cycle lane. And I measured it. It is six foot wide. And this guy is driving, is cycling up the pavement. I gave him another bollocking, including some more Anglo-Saxon phraseology and to use that. Now, Cam, uh, use the cycle lane. Or as I think a rugby phrase might come in useful here, Councillor Cuff, in your ivory tower of cycling nirvana. Uh, use it or lose it might be a good idea for cyclists. If you're not going to use the cycle way, then give it back to us.
the uh, uh, Tom and Brownstone is sending me a text at 53106. My headache is back. Got to change some hook. Calm down, man. You'll give yourself a heart attack. The heart attack was the least of my worries when a fellow on a bicycle is ploughing into me. You know, and uh, I just can't believe that we allowed this uh, nonsense by Dublin City Council. And uh, the Gardaí are ignoring the laws of cyclists, and maybe you might raise it with the Minister for Justice. Now, there's a thought. Uh, we might do that. Uh, Francis Fitzgerald will be talking to me about 5.30. And uh, if the Minister's uh, uh, Secretary is listening, they might mention it to the Minister. Another murder, a policeman and his wife murdered in front of their child in Paris. Uh, killed by uh, a Muslim who was under police surveillance, who was under phone checks and was on the danger list. Uh, in Orlando, 50 people are mown down by an Islamist who the FBI had interviewed. And I have to say, we are being constantly told by the liberal left that we should take all these people in and assume that all of them are actually law-abiding citizens. The problem is not necessarily the people we take in, but it is absolutely clear now to anybody with half a mind that radicalization of Islamic youth is a major problem for the West. And unless we have a serious attitude, and the guy who was 70 today, Donald Trump, whatever he is saying, however you disagree with that, he's not going to start World War Three, as many of you think he's going to do. He's not going to build a wall and make the Mexicans pay for it. But he is going to create a situation where American America becomes a sovereign state. And increasingly, we are not a sovereign state. It's interesting to read uh, a letter published in today's Irish Times and Irish Independent signed by some very distinguished people. Uh, they welcome the recent statement in the Dáil by Minister for Foreign Affairs Charles Flanagan that strategy of boycott, divestment and sanction to pressurise England into ending the occupation is a legitimate political um, viewpoint. It's quite interesting that um, the Irish government would now boycott probably the last bastion uh, of uh, civilization against people who want to a, nu a nuclear holocaust us off this very earth are the very people uh, that we want to boycott. I didn't hear any boy calls for boycott, divestment and sanction when six and a half million uh, Jews were being murdered. We took it. Uh, we, we didn't pay any attention to it. So we're a bit late to come to the party. Uh, the issue of gun control, I know many of you are going to say to me, it's not about Islamists, it's about gun control in the US. Uh, America could fix gun control. Obama is afraid, and he's been afraid for eight years to tackle anything serious in his presidency, and Clinton will do more, will do more. To think that with the last time 
uh, not last time, but one of the more recent shootings, the best Clinton and Obama could come up with was not to fly the Confederate flag over public buildings. Like, it's an absolute joke. Um, and uh, the uh, Trump is 70 anyway. Happy birthday, Donald. Have a great trip to Ireland next week. Sorry I'll miss you. I'll be uh, at Brexit. But I know the good people of Clare will give you a fabulous welcome uh, for the jobs and security you've brought to so many people uh, in the county. Uh, good man, George. I cycle into work and it really gets my goat when I see cyclists on the footpath. Uh, <laughs> George, I witnessed George giving the man on the bike both barrels, <laughs> says a texter. <laughs> Why don't you help me out? Why don't you go over and give him a barrel too? But thanks very much for witnessing it. Incredibly, uh, two women walked by and gave out to me because they said it was a road. It isn't a road. And that's because Dublin City Council, the Egypts in Dublin City Council, can't actually mark a pedestrian. They got some loony uh, artists to paint hieroglyphics on the road, which have absolutely no meaning, instead of just saying pedestrians only. Uh, the uh, uh, Martin lives in Selbridge and oh, down Selbridge the cyclists run into you from behind uh, Stephen Galway says the Orlando shooter was American you moron no he, he was he was an Islamist that's what, he, what I said the Americans have now said he was radicalised in fact he was American this is the nonsense people this is one of the real worries we have that the apologists, like Obama, say, you know, he was in America. He was an American. It's homegrown terrorism. It's not homegrown terrorism, as anybody uh, knows. Take away the bike from cyclists if they won't use the cycle. I tell you, I was very close taking it off your man today and bashing him over the head with it. Um, have you seen the cycle lane on Stevens Green, George? The width of a bus lane causing traffic chaos, says Willis, the taxi driver. Have a look at the bus lane in the Western Road in Cork. I tell you, it's about the size of the Champs-Élysées. And meantime, all the cyclists are on the other side of the road, ignoring it. It's a gas place. George, do cars ever misbehave, speed, injure, or frighten pedestrians, in your experience? Says a listener. Surely the need for consideration, especially with those inconsiderate cyclists you had the misfortune to encounter, uh, Marcin, who tries to be a considerate cyclist, to be a considerate cyclist. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie I'm joined now by Tornishta and Minister for Justice and Equality, Francis Fitzgerald. Tornishta, welcome to the programme. Good afternoon. Uh, cabinet meeting today, but for all families, you've made an adjustment to parental leave. What have you done? That's right. Um, what we have done today is agreed that we uh, will have uh, paternity leave, two weeks paternity leave, and that that will uh, now, because we've uh, put it through Cabinet today, we'll be discussing it in the Dole, and we hope it will be passed before July. And then uh, the Minister for Social uh, Protection, Minister Varadkar, can implement it so that uh, new dads uh, would uh, get the benefit of the two weeks paternity leave. 
Now, we're still a bit behind Europe, I would suspect, and particularly we're probably a fair bit behind Scandinavia, who are the leaders in this field, I guess. Well, they are, I mean, they, they, and they have been. Although, interestingly enough, the rates of social security in some other countries, in, in, including Scandinavia, aren't always as high as the rates that we pay, but the period of time that they get off uh, has always been much longer. So I think this is groundbreaking. You know, we now have, we will now have paternity leave in Ireland. Uh, so it is groundbreaking for Ireland. It's, it's a new leave. And uh, the Minister for Social Protection has already highlighted the um, uh, benefit for those who are self-employed, you know, uh, who, who do pay insurance that, you know, self-employed uh, dads will be eligible for it as, uh, as well. So um, it, we didn't have it before and we do, didn't have any provision for it and we were out of step, I agree with you. Uh, but over the years, I mean, I do remember a time uh, when, you know, there was 14 weeks maternity leave and then it went up like to 16 and 18 and, you know, it's now at uh, 26 weeks. So uh, we, we have moved on that and obviously adoptive leave and parental leave and now we have paternity leave. Okay, but the issue of the self-employed is very important because the self-employed lose out on many aspects of social welfare. So this would be an area where, where there would be pari passu with everybody else. Is that right? Well, if, if, when, if they're paying the insurance, they're eligible, uh, like in the same way that self-employed women can get maternity uh, leave uh, at present. But of course, they, that is a whole area where, you know, it's, it's such a problem when the self-employed, we've seen that during the recession, and it is something that we are looking at to, you know, try and make sure that there is a safety net there for the self-employed. And I think it's an area we're going to have to make a lot more progress on. Well, given the situation now in increasingly at that and I'm not making a big deal about it but the the idea of the whole equality thing more and more and the sharing of parenthood uh, between fathers and mothers and and all that sort of thing eventually you're going to reach the point presumably and is this where you're trying to go that ultimately you're going to have parental leave and it can be it can be taken by either party is that eventually where you would like to see this going? Well I think myself I mean, it is interesting, say, just, just to say on the paternity leave, uh, they've had it in Britain for some time. Only about 50% of men take it up in Britain. So it'll be very interesting to see what the take-up is here. Now, there may be lots of different reasons for that. But, you know, in the UK, only 50% of dads take up the paid paternity uh, leave. So we're not expecting that we'll have, you know, 100% take-up here. We think it might be, it could be the same, it could be 60%. We'll, we'll have to see how that goes. So, you know, the, the questions uh, of parental leave and, and sharing it. I mean, I, I do think that that is something that, you know, ideally, you know, a couple can decide between themselves. I mean, at present, if you're in the same employment, uh, you know, uh, the same employment, you, you can share it. Uh, you can share uh, some of it. That would so, be relatively unusual, though, and most would, most would, yes, would be in absolutely. different employment. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So, I mean, I, I think in terms of parental leave and the sharing of leave generally, I mean, People argue in, in different ways around that. For example, in, say in relation to maternity uh, leave, uh, you will have uh, an argument that says if the mother decides that she doesn't want to take, you know, the full maternity leave and if she wanted to share that with a partner. Uh, but others say, no, it's absolutely critical that you leave that with the, the woman and that you don't make it discretionary for sharing because, you know, the uh, argument being that the woman needs the, that oh. time and maybe uh, obviously uh, could be breastfeeding yeah. or whatever and, and not to go yeah. that way. But 
but, but they, there is a point. I think she actually might have held the same portfolio as you. I think there was a, there was certainly a French minister um, who sort of came back two weeks after the baby was born and and actually got a very hard time uh, for doing so and like being That's accused. That's right. Yeah, yes, I remember that. Yeah, and uh, well, you see, people can be very judgmental about these things. And I, my own view in it has always been, you know, there are some women uh, who you know uh, have to. Uh, you know, and very often self-employed women are, are uh, who have to go back uh, very quickly to work. And there's also women will do that by choice. Some women will do that by choice and will feel that's absolutely, you know, maybe what they want to do. Um, but if we can give women uh, the option, obviously, of having, you know, particularly I feel in the early years and particularly under one, under two, uh, where the child is under one, under two, the more support I think that the state can give because, you know, uh, there are many countries, for example, in France, they give much uh, longer leave, but that's because they're trying to up the birth rate here. We have a very uh, healthy birth rate in this country uh, okay. with, you know, 60,000 births every year. Uh, and so the state isn't in that position. So, you know, it, it can depend on the, the number right. of, of children being born in a, in a given country as well, the approach that is taken uh, from a government point of view. But I, I do believe we need to right. help parents to combine work and family life. All right. There was a number of issues, of course, the Cabinet, as there always is. Oh, I rarely see I to I was uh, Deputy Ruth Coppinger. But I do have a certain empathy with her when she says, you know, the Citizens' Conve- Assembly, you're kicking the can down the road because you are the Citizens' Assembly. We we voted you, the minister and your party and government, to make the decisions, no? So shouldn't you be debating it rather than some kind of makey-up committee talking about the repeal of the Eighth Amendment? Well, you know, given the particular history of that issue in Ireland, I really think the Citizens' uh, Assembly um, is a very positive initiative. I don't think it's kicking the can down the road. I think it's a real opportunity to create the space for the kind of debate that we need to happen, because it's very easy to say, repeal the eighth. But actually, what you need to have the discussion on is what precisely would replace it. And that has been so contentious in this country that I think having a Citizens' Assembly discussing this topic... um, in a, in a very well, if you like, organised way with a, a good atmosphere with key inputs from medical uh, and from all the different yeah. kind of elements that, that, that make up this debate. Um, but you are, it seems to me, sorry to honest that, yes. you, you are saying though that, that and, and in a way the teacher said that, you, you are going to be looking for uh, a replacement to what the Eighth Amendment is. Whatever it might be, you're going to have to get a replacement. Yes, I mean, I, I think that's true. This isn't a question. If, if we are going to deal with this issue outside of the Constitution, and if it's going to be dealt with by legislation, uh, then obviously uh, the Dáil will have to debate precisely uh, what, that, what should be in that legislation and what the, the Irish uh, you know, legislation would look like if that's the route that we're going to go down. But I do think, I would not underestimate uh, the potential, and I was a member, I was the government member of the Constitutional Convention, and I do believe there's a lot of potential in this, and I don't think it should be characterised. And uh, even Ruth, when she was speaking today, talked about, you know, the period okay. of debate that's needed in relation to this issue. So I think it's, it's one of the steps, you know, but okay. clearly it is going to be, a, 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 at the end of the day, it's the Dáil has to make the decision on legislation. All right. Uh, Donished, I'm ready, willing and able to serve on the Assembly. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me. That was Tarnished, a Minister uh, for Justice and Equality, Frances Fitzgerald. Thank <laughs> you.
The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Yesterday, the relics of St. Anthony of Padua arrived in the pro-cathedral all the way from Italy, and I went down to pay my respects and find out more about it. So have a listen to this. Well, we're in the Dublin's pro-cathedral. Today, big day. The relics of St. Anthony have arrived from Padua. They're flocking in here already. And I'm joined now uh, from the Franciscan Friary of Padua by Father Mario. Father Mario, welcome to the pro-cathedral. And you. welcome to Ireland. Thank you very much. And, you know, it was a long journey because we came all the way from Padua by then. So it was a long journey. <laughs> now, the, the relics have come to Ireland, but, but do the Franciscan Fathers in Padua, do you tend to take the relics around the world, go to different places? Yes. In 1995, to celebrate the 800th anniversary of St. Anthony's birth, we decided to take some of the relics outside to different countries to give the chance to many people, to many friends of St. Anthony, to have a, a closer encounter with St. Anthony because not everybody can come to the Basilica. It's costly. Uh, now, of course, uh, Father Mario, my name is George Anthony Hook because my mother had a great devotion. And when we were children and my mother would lose her, her handbag or her purse, uh, we would drop to our knees, pray to the good Saint Anthony, and the purse would magically reappear. <laughs> now, where has the tradition of St. Anthony and things lost come from? Yeah, you know, St. Anthony was the first teacher of theology in the Franciscan order, and uh, it taught the young friars. And one day, a young friar decided to steal the book of St. Anthony because at that time they didn't have the printing press, so a book was something very, very precious. So he went to the market to sell it. At the same time, the boy Anthony was you know, looking for his book and the gospel, and he was not able to find it, so he prayed to God to find his book back. And this is why, actually, he got the book back, because the young friar had a terrible vision and ran back to Anthony and gave the book back to him. Right, now, today, uh, of course, uh, many, many people listening to us, talking on this radio program, will sort of look at St. Anthony, will look at the idea of relics, will look at the idea of, of finding things lost is rather superstition and what do you say to people who have no belief in this? I always say that in a certain sense we all have some kind of relics at home. I'm sure you too, George, have a kind of relic. And I'm explaining a little bit better. We all have something precious, maybe uh, a little object or, a, or a, a letter or a photograph which belonged to somebody we loved and who is not with us any longer. For example, I have the wedding ring of my mother who died 20 years ago. It's just a common wedding ring. But when I hold it in my hand, I feel her next to me. It is a link of love. This is the word, a link of love 
connection. So a relic is nothing special. I mean, it's a, a part of a saint that allows us to have a, a physical connection with Saint Anthony. What do you do when you meet a friend along the street? You give him or her your hand because you want to have physical connection. When you love somebody, what do you do? You hug this person because you want to have physical connection. Physical connection is very important. So the people here have the chance to giving their hand in a certain way to St. Anthony and have this physical connection with, uh, with him. There is nothing superstitious, nothing magical. You won't see sparks or anything like that. It will be simply, you know, giving your hand and maybe you want to thank St. Anthony because he has done something for you. Or maybe you want to pray to St. Anthony to help you, you know, to pray to God for you. Father Mario from the Basilica of uh, St. Anthony of Padua, thank you so much uh, for speaking to me, but more, more importantly for traveling oh, that 1,300 kilometers all the way in the van from Padua to bring uh, the relics of St. Anthony, which will mean so much to so many people here, which will mean so much to me on a personal level. Because the point you make is really interesting, this idea of a connection, because today I feel a special connection with my mother. <laughs> so thank you so much. Thank you. We're in the Pro Cathedral because it was the relics of St. Anthony are coming. Are you interested in that? Well, my, my name is Anthony. My wife brought me in. <laughs> your name is Anthony? Yeah. Yeah, my middle name is Anthony. Yeah, I'm George yeah. Anthony. Yeah. So your wife's a fan, is she? Yeah, she would be, yeah, yeah. When she, she loses be. her purse... We're all on our knees, are we? Yeah. Well, I've just been in the Manor Hospital uh, having a test done. Yeah. And uh, it's, that's over, and she's saying thank you to St. Anthony. There you are, you see? Know. It's all St. Anthony, to mind the doctor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we've nice we've just been talking to your husband here, right? Yes. I'm very disappointed at him being Anthony and yes, all. He's not a believer. <laughs> Don't mind him. But you are. Yes, you're I like Saint Anthony. Yeah. 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 I, uh, so, uh, listen, Saint Anthony saved his bacon in the hospital. I hear. Is that true? That's true. Yeah. yeah. You were on your knees every night, were you? Oh yeah. Lighting candles. <laughs> <laughs> so nearly boring to place down. Is, this is a nice day, though, isn't it? Like it is a nice day. And that it kind is. Yeah. Coming, you know. Yeah like from the Basilica of Padua and so on. Mm -hmm. Have you always been, like, had a devotion to St. Anthony or not? Well, I suppose I've had, actually. I suppose you just kind of grew up with these saints. Yeah. You know, and just... Well, would he he's be... one of the saints now that I kind of like. Yeah, he's your favourite, kind of one of your yeah. favourite ones. Yes. With the relic here of St. Anthony, you've come specially for that, have you? We have, yeah. Um, friends of ours from um, Cork, rang us to tell us about it. So we came down this morning to see it. You know? Well, as you know, I'm from Cork. And, and yeah, and uh, the Capuchin Church in Cork, rather than the Franciscan Church, funny enough, was great on St. Anthony. And my mother yes. was a big fan. Yes. So uh, do you uh, pray when the bag goes missing and stuff? Everything do? goes missing. And my daughters ring me all the time and they say, Ma'am, I'd lost something. And as soon as I prayed for St. Anthony... They ring me back. I found it. Yeah, yeah. it's fantastic yes, all that there are so many unbelievers. Given that people like you and I find stuff instantly when always. we say a prayer to him. I was going to tell you that now, always. The only thing I find is that Anthony is no good. Uh, his big failing is with lateral numbers. <laughs> well, I don't look for that. I don't look for that. Thank look you for so health much. and happiness. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
Um, with me now is Canon Damien O'Reilly, the administrator of the Pro-Cathedral here in uh, Dublin, where, of course, we've got the relics of St. Anthony. Which I just had to come, Canon, You're you know, because you, it, it means so much to me from my childhood, to my mother, as I explained to Father Mario. Like, we're early, uh, but already people are starting to come in. You, you actually have policemen outside on traffic duty. You're going to get a crowd. Well, the last time these, I understand, the last time these relics came to Dublin, which was about two years ago, and they came to, I think, Church Street, and uh, they, like, there was an enormous crowd came, so I just had to be prepared. It is, of course, a fact of life, and in a way a sad fact of life, that the average age of the congregation today will be older. Um, we, we, this, the way Father Mario explained it about connection and everything else, we do really have to find a way of getting this message to a younger generation, albeit I think it's going to have to be in different ways, isn't it? Well, my, my, my reflection on today and my, my thoughts for today are, and my prayer very much today is, we, we associate St. Anthony when we lose something, like we lose our car keys or we lose whatever. Yeah. My thoughts today and my prayer today is, for those who have lost their faith, for those who have lost hope, for those who have lost love. So, that was very much my thoughts from the very word go. I wanted it to be a day of prayer in the Pro-Cathedral, a day where people could come and venerate the, and have that connection, as Father Mario has said, with, the, with, with St. Anthony. And in that connection, praying for those, be it the, their parents or their grandparents yeah. or whoever was praying, for, for their younger people who perhaps have... But I think a lot of it this evening, we'll see a lot of younger people this evening because of you know, the uh, people in work and things course, like that. Yeah. But my, my very much a focus when we think of something that's lost, I think of those who have lost their faith, those who have lost hope and those who have lost There's love. something special about this church, of course, because it is centre city and we lose sight, I think, do we not, that if you look at the history of this church, oh. so many people lived in this area. It was, a, it was a real living area, the inner city of Dublin. Now, people living in suburban Ireland, in suburban Dublin may never have crossed the threshold exactly. of this great church. Well, for example, this church opened its doors on the 14th of November, 1820, uh, 1825, the Feast of St. Lawrence of Tulipane. It has opened its doors every day since then for worship. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie I'm joined now by the Professor of German and Head of the School for Language, Literature and Cultural Studies at Trinity College Dublin, Jürgen Barkov. And uh, Jürgen is going to be speaking this evening as part of a panel on the rise of the xenophobic far-right movements in German-speaking countries across Europe. Jürgen, welcome to the programme. Very what, pleased to be here. What's happening tonight? Well, um, it is a panel discussion for the general public organized by the Trinity Longroom Hub, which is our research institute for the arts and humanities. I was director of that until recently, and I instituted a new format, which we call Behind the Headlines, where we take topical issues and analyze the background of those with experts from the arts and humanities and the social sciences. Yeah. Now, what you're talking about to me and what I really was interested in talking about, of course, what we are seeing in German-speaking countries, Austria, Germany itself, and Switzerland, uh, is a, a, 
a, a sea change in in political uh, allegiance and thinking. What's causing that? Do you think? And what do you are you, are you do you think this will wash out, or are you fearful, or what? I am fearful. I'm not as optimistic that it would will wash out as I was. Uh, uh, in the past, when we had occasional surges in right-wing uh, movements and support for those. Now, I think it's, it's important to say that in Switzerland, of course, the strongest party, 30% of the popular vote, the Swiss People's Party, has been in that strong position for more than a decade and has used the instruments of direct policies in Switzerland for their xenophobic policies. You might remember the Minaret Initiative when they got through a ban on minarets because already there were four already in Switzerland with the argument that they were a symbol for the will of Islam to dominate. And in Austria, the the Austrian uh, Freedom Party, which very nearly got their candidate elected as president. And in Austria, the president is a much more powerful political figure than in Germany or in Ireland, has real powers, can dissolve parliament, can can uh, uh, refuse to appoint ministers and is commander-in-chief of the forces. So in Austria also, this uh, Austrian People's Party has a long history of, of, of prominence. But the sea change is happening in Germany at the moment because Germany – never had a, 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 a strong party right of the ruling Christian Democrats. Um, everywhere around uh, Germany, in with the Front National in France, with Austria and Switzerland, Poland, the Scandinavian countries, the Benelux parties, uh, countries, all these countries had a strong populist movement and Germany didn't. And it's interesting to ask why. I think on the one hand, it has been acknowledged the Germans learned their lessons from their terrible past fairly well. The, the, the kind of, of, of political consensus that we really have to, uh, to, to fight any recurrence of the kind of thinking that led towards the Nazis, the World War and the Holocaust has been very strong. But now, 70 years after the end of the war, with the generations that were sort of adults uh, when they were affected by this – almost gone, that consensus is weakening. I think that's one factor. But the more important factor is, of course, that Angela Merkel has moved her party so far into the middle, or as their inner party critics would say, to the left. Um, It was a mantra of the Christian Democrats that there should not be a party right of them. And the Bavarian sister party, the CSU, which is more conservative in outlook than the than Angela Merkel's Christian Democrats, was the stalwart of that. But, uh, by the way, my guest uh, is from Trinity College Dublin, where he's head of the School of Language, Literature and Culture, uh, Jürgen Bachhoff, professor also of German. And we're talking about the movement to the right, particularly in German-speaking uh, countries, in which he is an expert. I mean... The the war, the Holocaust, all that sort of stuff, as you rightly point out, there are very few people alive today have any memory of that. I mean, even people who would be young people who would have been in the Hitler Youth or whatever, even they, you know, are now 70, 80 or more. So there's no memory. No. And and therefore these new groups of, of, of parties that recruit Germans – there are Germans who have no, other than reading a history book, 
Now, when you, they may not know of Willy Brandt or Conrad Adenauer or all this great movement mm. that brought Germany into the center after the war. Another question I would ask you, though, it is comparatively recent, the wall coming down. Is there a difference, for instance, culturally, between East Germans who came through a whole Soviet regime and West Germans who, since 1947, uh, have been a Western democracy? Uh, well, there is. Although um, the huge disparities, both in living standards but also in political outlook and mentality, are slowly uh, getting weaker. We see more of an integration between the two Germanys. But in relation to the sort of recent uh, influx of refugees, which was really the big trigger for the shift uh, uh, in, in party allegiances and for the rise of the neo-right, uh, in general, uh, East Germany is is um, uh, shows more support for these neo right movements. But and, you are looking. If you use the word neo right, and yeah. and like sometimes when people like you and I talk, very often we we talk in a language, you know, and then we wonder what does that actually mean? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But. You could well say that, and you might well say in November, that the United States of America has shifted yes. to the right. Yeah. Um, so, And it is caused by, I believe, a natural fear uh, of uh, a complete change in, in the culture of the various countries. Mm. And, and therefore, when Merkel did what she did... Yeah. She purported, in a way, to speak for the whole of Europe. She may have thought she was speaking for Germany, but because Germany is the dominant force in Europe, mm. she was mm. speaking for Europe. Yeah. And the rest of Europe, Europe, I think it's fair to say, doesn't buy into it. No, no. And there are, there are many who, who, who blame Merkel wholeheartedly for, uh, for, for this, this, this shift in orientation and the rise of the neo-right, certainly in Germany. Now, you, 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 you uh, touched on a couple of really important issues here. Uh, we could talk for a long time about Merkel's motives for opening up uh, uh, the, the European borders. Was she touched by her own uh, Chris, strong Christian values? Was it her experience in a, growing up in a dictatorship? Did she want it to rejuvenate the aging demographics of Germany? I think one of the more uh, one of the more convincing arguments is that she wanted to ease the pressure on Italy and Greece because if she hadn't opened a valve. Uh, yeah. Europe would have actually uh, crumbled uh, down at the south after going through so much effort to rescuing it economically. And yes, she was counting on European solidarity. Uh, yes, which it doesn't was, exist. Which, which doesn't seem to exist. In, 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 and, and yes, she, she tried to speak for the whole of Europe, and that was probably a misjudgment. It is also fair to say that not only does Europe not necessarily wholeheartedly support her, members of her own party yes, yeah. don't support yes. her. But that has to do with this traditional role of the two wings, if you want, of the, of the Christian Democrats in Germany. It was the Bavarian sister party who sort of keeps the right fringe happy. You see, when you talk about the, the, the 
the neo right or the far right or whatever. And and if you start talking about German speaking countries, mm. which you are, too particularly Austria and Germany, who who, who were were because of Anschluss, Austria was part of Germany, so they were and anti Semitism was absolutely rife in Austria. Yes. When you talk about that kind of right, you talk about the Holocaust, you talk about all the awful things that happened in Nazi Germany. A, a far-right party of today, mm -hmm. because, I mean, there are far-right parties in power in Denmark, in power in Portugal and many other countries, they're not going to gas Jews no. or, or gas Muslims for that matter. I mean, isn't there a political case, instead of saying the right is a demon, to say this is a, a reasonable political philosophy to have, no? Well... I wouldn't want to demonize these parties. I yes. think equating them with the Nazis is wrong. Sigmar Gabriel, the head of the Social Democrats, said two days ago, um, the last time I heard similar rhetoric was from my father, who was a dyed-in-the-wool Nazi. And he's not equating them, but he's drawing certain parallels. And you can draw certain parallels in their political style and their political outlook. First of all, they are simplifiers. They, they simplify very – and I think that's part why they are uh, – a reason why they are so attractive. They, they, uh, they get credence and they get support because the world has been – come so complex. And if you want those who are disenfranchised by globalization, they want simple answers. They want to believe that a strong nation state can bring back security and a homogenic society. And they promise this. And that's where the parallel to Donald Trump that you mentioned yourself is so important. The promise to not let them in to build a wall and solve all our problems. That is a that's a great temptation. It will never work in a globalized world. Says you I, yeah, that, no, I, no, that it won't I mean, work. No, no, you say it won't work, but but for argument's sake, I say it will. You know, I mean, for argument's sake, I say if you look at Dub let's take Ireland yeah. as a simple example. We can't house our own people, and then suggestion is we take. 20,000 migrants in. So if we can't house our own people, isn't it a reasonable, and I suppose by many standards, therefore, I might be described as right-wing rather than mm. left-wing, uh, I say, how can you bring in 20,000 people and give them houses when you can't give houses to the number of people who already live here? Well, I don't want to comment on Ireland, but, no, no, Europe's, but, you know but Europe's prosperity... You, you may not actually be right. This is the point well, of it. I, I, Maybe yeah. the right-wing guys are right. That's for the purpose of argument. I'm no, I understand you. That. I understand you. I, I, I think that, that Europe's prosperity, this fantastic uh, peace, uh, the success of 70 years of peace in Europe, yeah, of, of, of I mean, we, we spoke earlier about history, Germany and France have been at each other's throats for yes. hundreds of years. And Adenauer and de Gaulle very courageously overcame this. Yeah, We are putting this incredible progress, which has made Europe such a success, at peril if we re-nationalize. I, I, I very firmly believe in that. Yeah, because you're a European, right? I mean the European in the sense of the European ideal, the ideal originally developed by Jean Monnet, I think it was the French one. Yeah, you're you believer. I what am, we yes. do know, Cameron is facing mm. this absolute crisis in a week's time, yeah. where more than half yeah. the British population may say yeah. we're not believers. Yeah, I do think because uh, because David European Cameron, say, uh, yeah. because European policy is so slow, is so. Uh, 
uh, uh, bureaucratic that that people have have stopped seeing. Uh, what a fantastic project this Europe it is. Well and be. we have a huge problem with that across Europe. Yeah. I, I give you that, but I don't believe that the answers lie in, yeah. in, 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 in renationalizing. Uh, yes, but, but your Europe is, with respect, uh, is not, there isn't going to be another blitzkrieg, you know. They're, 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 uh, we're no. not going to see German tanks rolling across the Siegfried Line or whatever the heck it was. The idea of France and Germany being at its throats ever again, whether we in Europe or without Europe is simply not going nope. to happen. No, that's We're right. different. But what we could see is a com- like the Russian Football Federation is currently under suspension because we are seeing a very different kind of cultural movement. And now it's a bit much to relate soccer hooliganism, but we are seeing an enormous clash of cultures. Uh, I think I think the the, the the hooliganism is a good example because I think that the the, the, the terrible clashes. Uh, particularly between the Russian and the English fans, are partly triggered by the kind of rhetoric that someone like Putin has made part of the acceptable culture. Uh, a, a rhetoric of antagonism, of, 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 of sort of you have to defend your own and the other is the enemy and not and not sort of your friend and cooperation partner. And may I, may I just, I think another very important factor in the attractiveness of the neo-right and in the dangerousness of the neo-right is that they are very clever in working with insinuations, in manipulating popular opinion and the media. If I may just give you an example uh, that has to do with football again. At the moment, everybody talks about football. And the, the leader of the alternative Alternative for Germany, this party which yeah. is now at 15%, Frauke Petri, recently commented that Mesut Özil, you know, one of the stars of our of our national football team, that he um, posted pictures of him on a pilgrimage to Mecca on his Facebook page. Yeah? And she said, well, does one really need to show one's religion so publicly? Isn't it a private affair? Insinuating, he's, he's trying to proselyte. And then she said, and I mean, is he really living according to the Sharia? I think the, 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 the women that he, that he goes out with don't wear a headscarf. So he's a hypocrite and, and sort of assuming every Muslim is sort of has to be, okay. should be one of the Sharia persuasion. So, and this is a very clever way of insinuating and that's not a good way to make politics. I would, I would, I would say sort of if you, if you deal with politics this way, you manipulate, and that's not a good thing. All right. Uh, my thanks to my guest, uh, Jürgen Barkov, professor of German and head of the School for Language, Literature and Cultural Studies. Trinity College, thanks so much. Thank you very much.